You know, God's Word says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Now that we are saved, we eagerly look forward to this freedom. But if you already have something, you don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't have yet, we must wait patiently and confidently. Listen to that. But if we look forward to something we don't have yet, we must wait patiently and we must wait uh, confidently. That whole idea of looking forward to something you don't have yet, that whole idea of anticipation, that's the word we usually use in our culture. Anticipation, looking forward to something we don't have yet. We have some idea of it, but we don't fully have it yet. A baby's coming. We kind of have the baby, but it's not totally here yet. We paint the room, we put together the crib, we do all kinds of things. We have all kinds of parties for baby. We guess at baby's sex and size and all kinds of things, don't we? But we don't have baby yet. But there's some excitement about that. Anticipation is a two-sided coin. On one side of the coin is this excitement about what we're anticipating coming. And the other side of the coin is this, when, when, when we have uh, anticipation that keeps getting delayed and it's not happening and things aren't coming through, but we're kind of hanging in there, what happens? The other side of the coin is exhaustion, Right? We're excited over here, but over here we're like, again, another delay? You know, when's this going to happen? When's it going to take place? And so we have this excitement, but we also have inside of ourselves this exhaustion. It can feel deflating. The weight of waiting can hang heavy on us. You know, that's how the early Christians felt in the book of Romans. Because they were part of a kingdom that was now, but not yet. And so they had to live in another kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. And they had to live under its rules and its regulations and its leader. And so they were so excited that the kingdom of God was coming and it came in Jesus Christ and they accepted Him as Savior and Lord. And they started to live for Him and they started to live the words that Jesus taught. But as they were living in that kingdom, sometimes there was great excitement about when Jesus would come back and bring the full kingdom. But sometimes they were exhausted thinking, when's He coming back again? When's He coming back again? And that's what happens with anticipation. You know, a simple story about this is one year ago, my wife and I got on uh, the internet one night. It was kind of a capricious thing that we did. We had had a swimming pool at our last house, and we wanted to have a swimming pool at our house here. We knew we couldn't really afford to go out and buy a brand new swimming pool, so we thought, oh, let's just look on Craigslist and see what's available. In about 15 minutes, we had purchased a $1,500 swimming pool that was about two years old and just down the road in Enola. That's what happens in the Smith household every once in a while. A few days later, the gentleman that put the pool up there came to our house. They tore the pool down the night before. They brought their bobcat. They cut part of the hill. They filled part of the hill with that dirt. And by 2 p.m., their pool was there and it was filled with crystal clear water. The pumps were running and the filter was working. And so we looked at that pool, we went out and took a swim in it that night. We thought, it's all over, right? No. There was a big mess because of that pool. There was really no way to get in and out of the pool that well, except for a stepladder. And if you live around our home very long, you'll figure out, we like to have systems to things in our home. We like to have things tidy. We like to have things so we can clean them up and hose them down and put them away and have a place for everything and everything in its place. It's not always there, but we like to think... That's the way life works. And so it took up to a year to get the rest of the work done. 
We wanted to have the pool and the patio, the patio in for the pool for my son's pre-marriage party. It didn't happen. There were blue tarps down there, big mud holes down there, bricks laying around, uh, trees uprooted. It looked like a total mess out there. So when two days ago we finally completed the patio and the pool and the tan bark was down, I sat back on my chair and took a picture of my feet up with a picture of the pool and I sent it to my brothers and sisters and I said, it is finished. It's done. And guess what? Yesterday when it was that hot and I got in the pool, it was worth it all. It didn't feel like that two weeks ago when at 10 p.m. I was carting Riverstone around, you know, just to get out of the heat, but I had to get the Riverstone around and get it around the pool and get everything done, right? It didn't feel, back then I was like, is this worth it all? Yesterday it felt like, ah, this was worth it all. But sometimes when you're anticipating something that's coming and it's not coming to fruition, it takes more than a year. And maybe more is at stake than just going swimming in a pool, Right? Our emotions are at stake, our spirituality is at stake, relationships are at stake. And we feel like the early people of faith who are represented in the book of Romans, we feel like we're kind of in this waffle hut, vacillating between excitement about the coming kingdom of God, but exhaustion about living out and becoming a person of worth and value of the kingdom, living in this tension of this world. For centuries, theologians have wrestled how to talk about and how to illustrate this this simple thing. It's simple. It's the now kingdom, but the not yet kingdom. And they've come up with all kinds of diagrams and books and this and that and the other thing. This is about the simplest one that I could find, and I don't believe it's that simple either. But we're going to just look at it for a minute. And uh, uh, you see the, the, the line up top there that's red that turns kind of orange? That's the age to come. That's the eternal age. And then down here is the, cur- the current age, the temporal, where we live. And in between there is this tension. This now, but not yet. There's this tension between these two realms of the eternal and the temporal. You know, and you see on the timeline here, creation happened and God made everything perfect. Made us to be in union with Him. The kingdom of God was fully resonant in the Garden of Eden. Nothing was out of sync. But then the rebellion happened, Right? And after the rebellion, God had to send down His Son incarnate to come down to what? Plant the seeds of the kingdom to come. And He planted the seeds of the kingdom to come in His own death and His blood and His resurrection. But between the resurrection and the time where He returns again, we live in this tension of the now, the kingdom is here in and through us. And the church, that's what the church is. We're a microcosm of the kingdom to come. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. Through us. Through the church. But we feel that tension, don't we? We feel the tension of when's the kingdom going to come? When's it going to happen? And it's awfully hard to stay motivated sometimes when we're worn down. I remember taking systematic theology in seminary with Dr. Tianu. He was from Africa and he spoke eight different languages. He was a very intelligent man. Although he'd grown up in the, with the Donnie tribe's people, um, he, he was a very, very intelligent person. And sometimes we don't think someone as tribal as intelligent, but they are. They just didn't have maybe the exposure to education. Well, he did. He was a very smart man, and he would stand in front of us, and he loved to get to class debating theology. We're in systematic theology. So we would debate things like, you know, 
is Christ the only way? We'll be talking about soteriology or salvation. You know, we've been de- debating it and reading different books and debating this in class. And he's really trying to get us to talk about this and bring up the hard questions and, you know, ask different things. And so he would love it right in the middle of like a heated argument between three or four students. He would go, this is it. This is why I live, to be a professor that brings this kind of tension to my students. And we would all stop and, and, and he would say, you know why? Because faith is attention. And without tension, there is no faith. Living in the now but not yet tension is what is the perfect environment for us to grow in our faith. It's also, though, the perfect environment to feel defeated and to begin to ask, is it worth it all? And so I want us this morning to to look into two different questions that are about this tension in Scripture. In Romans 8, 28, it says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. But if we're honest at times, in this tension, it doesn't feel that way. And we ask ourselves, is it worth it all? There's two reflective questions that come out of Romans chapter 8 here that we're going to look at today that are going to help us deal with this tension between excitement and exhaustion when it comes to living the king, in the kingdom of heaven on this earth right now. Both of these questions rise out of Romans 8, and uh, they serve as kind of twin reflecting pools to help us to stop and take stock of our life, to catch our breath for a moment, and to encourage our faith so that we can carry on in the life-changing journey with Jesus Christ. So the first question that we need to ask each other, and we need to ask ourselves when we're wondering, is it worth it all, is this. What if God is for me? What if when I'm in this tension, when I'm feeling exhausted, what if God is for me? Romans 8, 31 through 34 says this. What can we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Underline that. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Underline that and then circle the phrase, if God is for us. Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave himself up for us all, won't God, who gave us Christ, also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us, whom God has chosen for his own? Will God? No. He is the one who has given us right standing with himself. Who will then condemn us? Will Christ Jesus? No. For he is the one who died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God, pleading for us. What if God is for us, even in the middle of exhaustion and tension? What if, in that time, God is in your corner cheering for you not to give up, not to recant your faith, not to give in to a lifestyle of this world, but continue developing the lifestyle of the kingdom? What if God is for you and cheering you on? The early people of the church, especially those in Rome, did not feel like many people were on their side or in their corner. If you remember right, the Roman government didn't understand them. In fact, they played into the hands of of the Jewish people when they had Jesus publicly humiliated, beaten, and crucified. They didn't understand it at all. As a matter of fact, we know there's early letters that are sent back and forth between the Roman emperor and his governors debating what are these Christians about and what does it mean that they eat the body, and drink the blood of their leader. Do they have his cadaver around somewhere? 
They actually asked that question, thinking that, you know, what are they talking about? They were totally misunderstood by the kingdom and the government around them. Also, they were totally misunderstood by other Jewish leaders and the religious leaders of their day who were Jewish. They saw Christians as making some sort of scam out of their their beloved traditions and their deeply held beliefs. They saw them as an aberrant heresy. They were not understood by even those who were of their roots. And then the vast majority of people at that time followed all different kinds of popular philosophies. They changed from one, from week or month to month, whichever one was more in vogue. They were confused about them too. Are these people Jewish or are they not Jewish? Are these people a cult group or are they not a cult group? You've got to remember back then, Christianity hadn't been around long. And so they didn't understand it. And they were misunderstood. People who placed their, they, they thought, who are these people who placed their faith in a man who was crucified for being an insurrectionist? But inside they held a hope that God's kingdom would fully arrive someday and would exonerate them and that they would be understood and that they would be given credit for believing what was right. But until then, they had to deal with this feeling. For the most part, like other people were in fact against them. So the idea that the author writes is, what if God is for you is exciting to them. That's an image to them that burns in their soul. They can't get it out of their heart. What if God is on our side? What if though we feel like we are underdog, God has this special pill in our ring for us to give us the power to overcome evil in this world and not to give up, even when we ask ourselves the question, is it worth it all? Is it worth it all? You know, for a lot of us, it's not hard to think about things that we feel that are against us, right? Maybe we've gone through a messy divorce and that didn't work out and divorce was in us, on us, through us to some extent. We feel kind of lost, in the midst of the mess of those relationships. Maybe we feel like the incurable, debilitating health issue that we have is against us. And it doesn't matter how many doctors we went to and how many specialists, it doesn't matter how many pills we've taken or therapies we've gone through. It doesn't seem to be repealing itself. It seems to be gaining momentum in our life. And so we wonder, is our health and even our body against us and working against us? There's the loss of jobs sometimes and we didn't get to decide and all of a sudden we had to review we thought we were going to get elevated in the situation and we got transitioned out we didn't expect that at all and we wonder you know is, is our workplace for us or not how about unanticipated financial crisis that happened you didn't expect for everything you invested to all be whittled away by somebody else in the stock market you were getting ready to retire in just a year or two and all of a sudden you can't retire and you must work on but your workplace says you're not going to work on here we've already lined up your replacement sometimes we feel like things are against us don't how about when a child has wandered off from the faith and wandered into the world and you wonder if they'll ever return and become a worshiper of the true and living god again and you wonder is it worth it all how about any dream that's been deferred inside of you that started but hasn't come to fruition, that's now but not yet? Maybe you're exhausted waiting for that dream to come true. 
And so you ask yourself in your exhaustion, is it worth it all? Is it worth it all? Pastor and author Jeff Mannion remind us that the words of Jesus still ring true today. Jesus said this while he walked this earth, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In his book, The Land Between, Jeff reminds us that we need to, needs us, reminds us that when we find ourselves locked up in the perplexity of the pain of life, that we can rely on God. He wrote these words. There are times when God allows us, as he did the Israelites, as he did Moses, to suffer need. The need may be physical, emotional, spiritual, material, or relational. Such needs have a tendency either to discourage or debilitate us, or a third thing, to drive us into God's presence, where we can ask for his guidance and his provision. The truth is that God sees us. He sees everything about us. He knows our need, and he is trustworthy, and he wants us to learn to trust him to provide, even in the land between, between the now and between the not yet. When I was young in the summertime, and I'm not young anymore, I turned 50 at the end of the summer. And so I decided I was going to try to play softball the last two years, but then when I saw the younger guys coming in the office who had been playing softball, I'm like, wow, they got big shoulders and strong legs. Their backs don't hurt. I never see them taking ibuprofen around here. I live in a steady stream of that stuff. I do preemptive strikes. If I'm going to go out and work in the yard for four hours, I'm taking two ibuprofen before I even go out there kind of loosens everything up, you know. And uh, the other day, John Henderson, as a matter of fact, Melody's husband was in the office and he had a big strawberry in his leg. And I, and I said, where did you, how'd you get that big bruise in your leg? And, you know, there's missing skin and all kinds of stuff. You get a big scab there, you know. He goes, yeah, I was sliding into second. I said, I haven't slid into second for 25 years. <laughs> so I'm thinking maybe next year I'll join a 50 and over softball league, but I'm kind of afraid that maybe those guys have something to prove being 50 to over. So I'm going to interview, interview very, very, very tentatively before I join the league. But I used to play softball, and I was a pitcher of sorts. I, I pitched both fast pitch and slow pitch, and I was a better slow pitch pitcher than I was a fast pitch pitcher. But we would play in the summertime, and usually in the heat, like now, like the last couple weeks, that kind of heat. So you're out in that kind of heat, and you're starting to get hit. You know, you're playing in a game, and, and you've you got it down the first couple of innings, but about the fourth inning, they're on to you. They know that, you know, they know your different pitches. They know when you're going to throw the knuckleball. They know some different stuff. And so they start, man, they start lambasting you. They start hitting stuff near the fence, over the fence, and you're hot. But one thing that I would never do was I'd never give a sign to the coach that I wanted out of the game. Because I thought that showed weakness. And I thought, if I show I'm weak and I want out, he may never put me back in. But if I act like I'm always okay, even when I'm getting killed out here in the heat of the game, and he decides to take me out. That was his choice, not mine. So he'll put me back in next chance I get. I never thought of you know, taking a break. I never thought of letting the coach know that you know, I'm getting lambasted, I'm ready to come out. I dreamed in my mind about being in the dugout, sitting down, sucking on some Gatorade, just getting my breath again, wiping off my brow, and hearing what my coach had to say about the guy that was taking me to task the lefty who just kept hitting it out by the fence, but I was afraid to do that. And I think the same thing happens in our spiritual life. 
I think in our spiritual life, we get going with God. You know, we start celebrating his grace. We start connecting with his family. We get into a small group. We start contributing to his work. But we start contributing to his work, and some things aren't just kind of working out so well. And all of a sudden, we hit some bumps in the road in the now-not-yet kingdom. We pray for things, and they don't happen. We go to a small group, and we share a prayer request again and again and again and again. And we're afraid that that shows some sign of a lack of faith in us, so we stop going to group, or we stop sharing the request, or we back off, and we wonder, is it worth it all? When really, God just wants us to take a little breather, something he calls Sabbath, and move into the dugout. It's not just once a week. Sabbath rest wasn't meant for just once a week. It was a recurring time to sit with God and be in his presence, because God knew in the kingdom of now and not yet, we were going to need some breathing time. He knew we were going to ask the question, is it worth it all? And he knew that the only way that we were going to make it is if we heard him saying, yes, it's worth it all. And here's some adjustments to make. And here's some time to take out. And let me build into your soul as we sit here together. I wonder in your mind's eye this morning, if you had to be like the original Christians in Rome, if you had to think, what would it look like today for God to be for you? What would that look like? For God to stand in your corner. When everybody else misunderstands, when nobody else stands in your corner, what would it look like this morning for God to stand up for you and to be on your side? What if God is for you? What if God wants you to make it from the now to the not yet and wants you to have hope in your heart while you do it? I want you to close your eyes and I just want you to do this brief exercise with me because God made our imaginations. He gave us a really powerful gift when he gave us the gift of imagination and he, God crafted it and made it. I want you to imagine standing and I want you to imagine in front of yourself at about three feet a very deep and distinct line being drawn in the sand. You're standing on sand now. I want you to see on the other side of that line all the people and the situations and the things that are causing you to feel like, is it worth it all? I just feel like that's all caving in on me. All the pressures of life. Maybe they're not even people, they're just situations. I want you to visualize them. And then I want you to, as you're standing there, looking in the face of all of that pressure that causes you to ask, is it worth it all? I want you just to hear gently behind you coming up set of footprints as someone walks up behind you. It's Jesus. And I want you to visualize him throwing his arm around your shoulder. And then ever so gently taking his hand, his other hand, and cupping your chin and just lifting your face ever so gently toward his. And then I want you to see him smiling at you. An ear-to-ear grin. And I want you to think about what would it look like this morning if God is for me? As you listen to the words of this song, just keep meditating on that. God, what would it look like today for you to be for me? So faithful 
reflecting pool that scripture gives us when we feel like is it worth it to continue our faith to grow in our faith or should we just recant and bug out God says hey how about considering this I'm for you I'm on your side I get it I get it that you're struggling between the now and the not yet I get it that you need hope I am hope come meet with me Come rest in me. You need a break from the game. And sit in the dugout, listen to my voice, and be refreshed in me so you can continue the journey of faith that I have carved out for you. 
for the rest of your days. When the excitement of life dims and the exhaustion of the journey peaks out, the second question we're going to look at will also help you stop and reflect and catch your breath and be refreshed and invigorated to continue the journey. The second question to ask yourself when you begin to wonder if it's worth it all is, what if nothing could ever separate me from God's love? What if nothing could ever separate me from God's love? God's Word says this as we continue on in the book of Romans. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? If we're persecuted or we're hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? Even the Scriptures say, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from His love. Underline that. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from His love. Death can't. Life can't. The angels can't. The demons can't. Our fears for today and our worries about tomorrow. Even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, that's a strong, strong place to go in a reflecting pool to say, nothing can separate me. Nothing that is done to me and nothing that I do can separate me if I will turn toward Him when He cups my cheek and turns his, my face His way. If I turn, if I don't push away, if I just allow myself to be face in face and eye to eye with the Savior, it will change how I'm feeling and thinking right now. And it will inform the question, is it worth it all? By His presence and His power. You know, many of the things that we feel that are keeping us from God's love are out of our control, aren't they? There's things that other people do. There's things that we can't do anything about. However, if we're honest, we have to admit that there's, there's a, maybe not a majority, but there's a lot of things that make us feel distant from God that are related to our own attitudes and our own actions. There's decisions that we make that drive us toward God or away from God. There's things that we decide on that we don't consult God about. And we commit original sin. Original sin is what? To choose between good and evil without consulting God. That's what Adam and Eve did. And that's what we do so often, right? We don't consult God. We just make the choice and we move on. And when we do that, sometimes then we don't feel close to Him. Later on when we need to revisit, was that decision right or wrong, good or bad? You know? The truth is still the truth, though. Whether it's some sin committed against us or a sin that we commit that makes us feel like we're distant from God, it makes us feel like, is it worth it all to hang in there? The truth is still the truth, and it's this. Even in our sinful state, as a matter of fact, especially there, God, who is the hound of heaven, continually pursues you and me, especially in our sin. This side of the grave, God doesn't give up on this relentless pursuit of his children. And he says, it's worth it all, and it's worth turning your face back toward me when I turn mine toward you. This has been true for Patricia. She's a lady who's rediscovered her long-lost faith through the people and the ministries of Daybreak Church. 
We're going to sit back and we're going to listen to her story together. Let's watch as Patricia encourages us that God has been with me all the way. I up in a home without a dad um, and a mom who tried her best to keep four of us fed and clothed and cared for. I mean, I knew I was loved, but I often felt alone. And I grew up knowing I was the mistake and I might have even been aborted. I didn't realize how much that hurt me until I actually heard those words. But I knew I was loved and more importantly, there were people in my life who made me feel cherished. I used my imagination a lot. I was a great pretender, so I was able to create the rest of my world and it was happy and I was a great pretender, so that was enough. Um, later, uh, we moved to a new neighborhood and my mother remarried and I wanted so much to fit in and be accepted. <clears throat> I thought, now I have a father um, who will cherish me and my mother will be happy and Instead, I watched her um, still being overworked and sometimes drinking too much, and I would often be woken up in the middle of the night by arguments. Um, I didn't want anyone to know that, so I just pretended like um, where our family was normal, quote normal, like the other families in the neighborhood. Um, when close family friends attempted to abuse me, um, I pretended that it didn't hurt me. Um, uh, it was the first time I used that talent of pretense to cover up shame. When other people in my family didn't believe me, I pretended it didn't hurt me. And then something wonderful happened. Friends started taking me to church. It's the first time I felt the love of Jesus in my life. Um, I truly felt accepted and cherished and part of that family. I didn't have to pretend anymore, and it really was enough. As a teenager, um, that's when I first walked away from God. Um, even though I was a straight-A student and I belonged to many activities and I tried everything to fit in and be part of that world, um, I thought that that would be the place where I would be wanted and noticed and cherished. But I was focused on achieving and not receiving. Um, and I was left feeling empty and discontent. I fit in with everybody and nobody all at the same time. Disappointment started turning to bitterness and all the teenage feelings that we have. And I started dating a much older man. And I was lured into believing that he was the one that was going to make me feel cherished. Um, that was the person that was going to make me feel loved. And I became so obsessed with that person that um, not only did I walk away from God, but I walked away from all of my goals and I walked away from school and my friends. And I started behaving in a reckless manner and I didn't care at all about God or my family or even myself. Um, this unhealthy behavior continued through my 20s and even after that relationship ended, um, even with my um, husband, there were still unhealthy aspects that I just clung to. Um, and then God blessed me after I was married with my children. 
They really helped me to see that my self-worth and my self-esteem didn't come from somebody else. Um, and they made me feel needed and truly loved and appreciated and, yes, cherished. So it was my children that really brought me back to God and brought me back to church. I wanted them to experience that feeling of belonging and the love of Jesus that I had felt when I was younger. My marriage survived for 25 years, um, but during that time I sinned and I knew it was a sin and I think that was the greatest shame of all and I think that's when the most damage was done not just to my marriage but to myself. Then the unthinkable happened. I watched as my youngest child began to behave the way I did when I was a teenager. Um, he got into drugs and he started flunking out of school and no matter how hard I tried, I could not help him. Um, I kept trying to do it my way and nothing worked. I tried everything. Um, all the pretending in the world wasn't going to make that a happy situation. At that time, some really good friends kept inviting me to come to church and I, yes, I would come. I kept saying I would come and eventually one day I did. And from the first day I walked in, I, I could just feel God's presence washing over me. And um, I knew it was time. There was no more that I could do for myself. I had to turn everything over, everything. My shame, my past, his life, my marriage. Um, I, I finally had to take it out of my hands and put it into his. Through that journey, I had my friends and family here at Daybreak to help me along, and I could feel Christ in my life coming closer and closer to me. And God saved my son's life as well as mine. I really came to realize then that nothing had ever really been in my hands and that um, I was never alone. God had always been with me. The reason I wasn't hurt when people tried to abuse me was because God had been there. Um, the reason I found my first church family was because um, God knew I needed that and He gave it to me. Um, he also knew the day that I would walk away and abandon him, and he knew the day that I would come back to him, and he was there for me. God loves me, and, and he celebrates my brokenness. He's provided a community where I don't have to pretend anymore. He's restored me. He's promised that there's a way for me to connect with other Christ followers and has provided that way for me. He's provided a means for me to contribute and share the gifts that he's given me. I'm never going to have to go back to that place where I feel alone or neglected. I'm never going to have to pretend anymore to be happy because I can be truly happy. I don't have to feel shame or guilt because he's washed that away for me.
I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from His love. What does it take to be able to pen those words and to send them off to people who are being persecuted for their faith, who have the kingdom who is now but not yet? Well, I think we learned what it takes. It takes two reflecting pools. The person who penned those words to encourage those Christians and you Christians here today sat by the same two reflecting pools. What if God is for me? And what if nothing that happens can ever separate me? Those are empowering pools of water to sit next to with your master and to hear his voice and let him rebuild your interior so that you can get back up and be in the game. And then again, take a break especially when you're asking yourself, is it worth it all? Is it worth it all? Uh, I have a number of books up here this morning. You guys can see them kind of uh, laying here. One of them is called Plan B. Uh, what do you do when God doesn't show up the way you thought he would? This is a great book to read. If you've really been struggling with this whole thing of what is it worth it all, but it's not just a, sometimes it's kind of a passing thought and then you get back on your feet again. Sometimes it's lingering. And if it's a lingering thought, this is a great book for that. Also, the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, especially the chapter called um, uh, Pushing Through the Wall, when you have a wall to your faith, when, when all of a sudden, bam, you keep running into this wall with your faith. It's a great chapter. It's in there about chapter uh, 7 or 8 in there. That's a, that's a great book to read. And then also the, the book The Land Between, Finding God in Difficult Transitions of Life that I read from earlier. But uh, there's another book that I want to read from you to, from, uh, to you in closing. And it's called uh, Sun Stand Still. It was written by a pastor and an author named Stephen Furtick, and he pastors the Elevation Church uh, down south of here, which uh, all kinds of people come to his church every weekend, and they find Christ, and uh, God has just done some really neat things through there. But in, in his book, in the book that Furtick wrote, uh, Sun Stand Still, he bases the premise of the book on the Old Testament passage where Joshua and the ancient Israelites are fighting a battle, a battle that was very contingent on whether they would all possess the land or not. And uh, the sun started to go down, and they knew that they were going to have to stop engaging in the battle, and they were going to have to retreat for the night and then come back to battle the next day. But they were winning, and so they didn't want to have to retreat, but the sun was going down, so they weren't going to be able to continue the battle. Um, So... Joshua says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray that the sun stands still long enough for us to win this battle. And sure enough, he prays it. The sun stands still for an hour, and they win the battle. And there's victory. And we know the rest of the story. They're able to take the land piece by piece by piece and conquer the land. And so he bases his whole book on this idea of praying these audacious prayers of faith. And so our staff is reading through this book and we often will do this, read through a book and take part of our central staff time to discuss the book, talk about the book. It's kind of a nice place because it can be kind of the knights of the round table. When you discuss the book, anybody can be right, anybody can be wrong, everybody's opinion is fine. It's kind of one of those things, the nameless, rankless discussion of the book, okay? Nobody gets beat up if they don't agree with my opinion or yours or whatever. So it's kind of a nice place to be. And, um, but in the book, it, it kind of became overwhelming to me at first because The first 12 chapters of the book are about this courageous faith thing, okay? Listen to the titles of this. This is 12 chapters in a row. Welcome to Audacious Faith. 
Prayers that stop the sun. Page 23, vision. The sun stands still lexicon. Ignite the ordinary. Be a wave jumper. Tiny babies and giant faith. The surcharge of sacrifice. The simplest systematic theology ever. Hear, speak, and do. The solid ground of audacious faith. Turning your mistakes into miracles. I was ready to vomit after chapter 12. You know why? Because I'm a real person. I've been a Christian for quite some time and a pastor for over 20 years now. And I knew that there were times when I engaged my faith, forbore on, and I had prayed sun stand still prayers and things hadn't changed. And I knew that that was true. And so as I read through the first 12 chapters, I thought, oh man, I can't take any more of this guy. Come on. But I was trying to hold my tongue, and I just let the rest of the staff complain about him. But then we got to chapter 12, and this is when I felt like I'm in sync with the author of this book. When he wrote a chapter called, When the Sun Goes Down. Audacious faith doesn't mean your prayers work every time. It means that God is working even when your prayers don't seem to be working at all. This is a chapter I can read. And I read this, Be the Miracle. Stephen Furtick wrote this, Sometimes we get to see the miracle, other times we get to be the miracle. In other words, sometimes God's strength is demonstrated in what he does all around us. Around us there are the external effects of our faith, and there's tangible answers to our prayers. But at other times his strength shines in us, enabling us to endure devastating setbacks with remarkable strength, because the sun is standing still, not just outside us, but within us. We get to be the miracle in those times. I want to encourage you this morning that if lately you've been, maybe not asking it at small groups, but inside your heart, you've been asking the question, is it worth it all? Is it really worth it all to hold on to faith and be a person who lives in a kingdom of here and now that comes against my faith, it seems like, at every corner. Is it worth it to hold on to my faith and persevere until Jesus comes or I go? It's worth it all. And I wanted to give you two reflecting pools this morning to remember, what if God's for you? In the hardest of times, what if He's standing with you, surrounding you, empowering you, with his very presence and his strength. What if he's letting you take a break and catch your breath? What if he invites you to do that with him over and over again? And what if not only is God for you, but what if nothing can separate you from his audacious, powerful love? I encourage you to sit at those reflecting pools as often as you need to. Hear his voice, experience his presence, and then follow him wholeheartedly as you get back up and you walk from the here and now into the future that he has. And he will return again. And when he does, he will say out loud what is recorded in the book of Revelation. Look, I'm making everything brand new. What you hope for.
has now come to full fruition. Let's talk to God together in prayer. I'm going to pray a paraphrase of the passage from the paraphrase called the message, and I just want you to listen to the words. Let them encourage you. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is, any, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of his chosen? Who would dare even point a finger at us? The one who died for us, who is raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment. He's sticking up for us. You think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. No trouble, no hard times, no hatred, no hunger, no homelessness, no bullying threats, no backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in all of Scripture. No, none of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus Christ, our Master, has embraced us. Amen.